Romans 11:25 and let's take a couple of moments for prep. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather around the good word of God and to have the opportunity once again to taste of the dynamics of the age to come in this place. We're grateful for the promise that we have that where the brethren dwell together in unity, there you command the blessing of the experience of eternal life. What a great and splendid promise that is. We pray that we will be highly incentivized and overflowing with hope as a result of our meeting together tonight. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Part of Operation Epsilon. It just happens to be that the two words that we're going to lead off with tonight fairly well, fairly soon are euangelion means gospel, and eklekton means the elect one or the elect in the plural. It's elect ones. In the singular, it's the elect one. Euangelion, the gospel, eklekton, the elect one. But let's pick up where we left off in Romans 11.25. We're pushing now driving really to the close of chapter 11 where we reach a peak of divine revelation in Romans. That peak has to do with universal mercy as the peak that we're driving toward in Romans 8 on Sundays is the universal and unrestricted love of God. Both of these find a place together in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. But God, in his great love and abundant mercy, made us alive together with Christ. His great love, his universal mercy. And these are the twin peaks of the book of Romans. Romans 11.25, this is my translation. My siblings, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery so that you would not be wise only in your own estimation. That hardness has come about in part of Israel only until the totality, Pleroma, of the Gentiles come in. Then, without further ado, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, namely Isaiah 59, 20, and 21, followed by a conflation of Isaiah 27, 9 and Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Those are all indicated by, as it is written, quote, the rescuer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this, verse 27, and quote, this is the fulfillment of my covenant with them where I take away their sins. You'll note here, and again, we're trying to do somewhat of a streamlined treatment of this instead of treating every word. Israel is not saved without the nations or the Gentiles. And the nations or the Gentiles are not saved without Israel. Put that in the positive light. Israel is saved only as the nations come in. And the nations are saved only in connection with Israel's total salvation. Romans 11.25 then deals with the mystery, which we call pars proto. There's two ways of looking at the mystery in Scripture. This is the key to interpreting what it means. And the first meaning of the mystery, pars, let's make that pars proto. 
the Latin is extremely helpful. The phraseology of Latin is extremely helpful in theology. Pars pro toto simply means the part is put for the whole. And when we have the mystery, many times people think that the entire mystery is summed up by a statement like this. Well, that's the whole mystery of God, that part of Israel's is hard until all the Gentiles come in. No, that's the mystery, pars pro toto. The mystery is spoken of in part as if it's the whole of the mystery. When you talk about the mystery in toto, this will all be in print too, so you'll see these things in print. You're talking about the mystery in its totality. That's the revealed, divine, salvific reason for the temporary hardness in Israel is only pars pro toto. It's part of the mystery. It feeds into the entirety of a mystery of God. In Romans 16, 25 to 26, which is the last, the penultimate verses of Romans, that names what the, Rome, what the Latin would say, mysterium in toto, or the totality of the mystery, calling it the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery. That mystery, the in toto, the mystery in its totality, as we've explained before, is the will of God to sum up all of created reality in Christ. That's Ephesians 1, 9 through 11, extremely important passage in Paul. Ephesians 1, 9 through 11. It is the mystery in toto, God's intention to Summarize, to sum up, literally it means anakephalai'a'o, means to put under one head, being Christ, all things, all created reality, diachronically. That means in all of its times. So in the context of that great universal horizon of God's salvific action, Israel is saved. Israel is saved within a still larger horizon of the salvation or the summing up of all humanity in Christ. When I say all humanity in Christ, I speak of all humanity in all of its times, all of the sequences in history. And it means that all of humanity is also saved within a still larger horizon of the recapitulation of all creation, all of created reality in Christ, brought under one head. We've shown you that Irenaeus and others of the church fathers called it rightly recapitulation. We'll have much more to say about that down the road. We also find that in Ephesians 1, 19 to 23, the headship of Christ Colossians 1.18, God has made him to be head over all things, ultimately, but for now, proleptically, he is head of the church. When God sums up everything, God himself, who indwells Christ, becomes all in all. Now that's bringing us up to speed or up to where we are now. Now we have the word euangelion, Operation Epsilon. Words that begin with Epsilon happen to be our subject tonight. Euangelion, the gospel, eclecton, election, both found in Romans eleven twenty-eight. Notice this again. This is my translation. I'm working on a translation from, I finished the translation of Romans. I'm going to do one that expands it greatly and becomes easily readable for you. So that should be done sometime maybe around Easter. Romans eleven twenty eight. Paul says, on the one hand, with respect to the gospel, they, speaking of the hardened part of Israel, they are enemies for your sake. We could even say for your salvific sake, for the sake of your salvation. Speaking here to Gentiles, remember, He's speaking now as the apostle to the Gentiles, to Gentiles. And he says, on the one hand, with respect to the gospel, euangelion, they are enemies for your sake. But on the other hand, with respect to the election, here's the second E, eclecton, 
the election, a work of God. On the other hand, with respect to the election, they are loved as represented by their forefathers. So we're back to the idea, first of all, in Romans eleven sixteen of the sanctification, which is another, really another word for salvation, the sanctification of the whole batch by the first fruits in the offering and the meal offering. And we're back to the idea of the sanctification of the branches, even the broken off ones, because of their connection to the root. Again, in Romans eleven sixteen. The primary forefather that's being spoken of here, where it talks about the forefathers, is Abraham. And to him came the promise that in his seed, all the nations will be blessed. That, of course, includes all of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, according to Jesus, are living now. You say, but they died, but they're living now. In Luke 20, 37 and 38, Jesus said they're living because God is the God of the living and not of the dead. The fact that Jesus, by his death and his resurrection, was made Lord of the dead as well as Lord of the living, Romans fourteen nine, has to mean that the dead are now alive in him. I'll say that again. The fact that Jesus, by his death and his resurrection, he both died and raised again from the dead in order to be Lord over the living and the dead. That fact has to mean that the dead, that we call them, are now alive in him. Every human movement and every human ideology, every political and religious movement has always by necessity, left some people behind. The divine salvific movement leaves no one behind, including the dead. And that's quite a remarkable feat. No politician can stand up on any occasion and say, well, we've helped every race and every ethnicity and every gender and the handicapped and the people with difficulties, but can't do anything for the dead. God's even helps the dead. The only way to help the dead is resurrection. They're alive in Christ. This verse in Romans eleven twenty eight is not saying that something the forefathers did assured their descendants would be loved by God. That's not what it's saying. This verse is not saying that something the forefathers did assured that their descendants are loved by God. Therefore, Israel is loved by God because of what their forefathers did. What he's really saying is that what God did in their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is really what he did in their seed, Christ, he does for all of Israel, even the presently or historically hardened. In fact, he's actually emphasizing that his faithfulness is prominent even in the face of human infidelity. And the great verse from the pastoral epistles that expands this whole idea, or that is a interpretive of this whole idea, is 2 Timothy 2.13. If we become faithless, or if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Their faithfulness is equated with God's self. God is all faithful. That's what he is. He can't be other than that. He'd have to deny his own being in essence. So historically speaking, what this is teaching, the hardened part of Israel are enemies of the gospel. While Gentiles are flooding into God's kingdom at the time Paul wrote. Eschatologically speaking, and that means Christologically speaking, and using the vocabulary of election, they are beloved. And the reason for that 
is not boiled down to the forefathers, but to the seed that came through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is Christ. Now, in the, probably the most significant theological thesis that has been written in the 20th century, it's found in the famous volume 2-2, Academic institutions and theological seminaries, all they have to do is say 2-2 and they know what you're talking about. They're talking about Church Dogmatics by Karl Barth. And you should know it because it's a very important theological thesis. In volume 2-2, 2.2, of Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics, it's found in section 33 And I think it's on page 94 in the Bromley translation, which I have. In the election of Christ appears the famous thesis that reads thus. Now, what I did was I surprisingly, I woke up thinking about this. So I took this apart, which might have us hunker down a little bit, not moved as fast as I want to through Romans 11. But I think it's important that you and I understand this together. The famous thesis that reads thus. The election of grace, he says, is the eternal beginning of all the ways and works of God in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God in his free grace determines himself for sinful man and sinful man for himself. He therefore, and this is the most important part of this, this is really the greatest discovery made by Karl Barth in all of his 31 volumes. There's, I don't know how many volumes, but there's 31 books that make up that theological thing. I haven't read it yet. He therefore takes upon himself the rejection of man with all of its consequences. And elects man to participation in his own glory. Now that theology wouldn't fly today in any seminary because he used the word man. And what he means by man is mankind. And what we mean by mankind is men and women. And... We could say the other 31 genders or whatever they are, but there, there's, it's humanity. It's all of humanity. So what I did was, let me, what does this mean? How do I hammer this thing out? It's in raw form. It's an ore form. How do I heat it up, pound it out, and turn it into a blade that's useful? I've been watching Forged in Fire, so this, these analogies. Pretty good show. The first thing that we need to do is determine in what sense Barth uses the word determines. It depends on what the word, it's determined by what the word determines means. Remember, no, you don't remember that. Already, you're too young to remember the meaning of is, is. But the first thing that we need to do is to determine in what sense Paul, Barth uses this word determines in his thesis. Determines, and he says, remember, he says, and this will be in print too for you, that will help you out immensely, I think. In God, in his free grace, determines himself for sinful man and sinful man for himself. The first thing we have to do is ask, what does determine mean in Barth's usage? And I came to decide that determines means decide. Second, Question, what does Barth mean by man? It's clear from the context that he means mankind, which is humanity in toto, what I call all of humanity diachronically in all of its times. That God determines himself for sinful man means, and it means this to me even if it doesn't mean this to Barth, because I see it in the scriptures. That God determines himself for sinful humanity means that God decided in himself to be for humanity in toto. Romans 8.31, God is for us. That he determined to act in behalf of humanity 
In fact, he determined to act as humanity, for humanity, in the man Christ Jesus. That is, he determined to act in behalf of humanity in toto. That word in toto means humanity in its totality. However, God decided not only to act in behalf of all of humanity, but also to decide on behalf of all of humanity. He determined himself to be for all of sinful humanity, and he determined all of sinful humanity for himself. Essentially, this means that God decided for all of sinful humanity who would never have decided for God or to be for him on their own. And this is clarified in the second sentence of the thesis. He therefore takes upon himself the rejection of man, of humanity, with all its consequences and elects mankind to participation in his own glory. He's speaking of all of humanity elected to participate in God's glory, but the key word is in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm taking it upon myself to interpret this, that God takes upon himself the rejection of man or of humanity in Jesus Christ means that God in Christ, specifically at the cross, took the responsibility for humanity's rejection of God. God took responsibility for humanity's rejection of God. You want to define grace. There's a definition for grace. Never heard that one before. This is how you stand on shoulders of men. You don't just parrot what they say. You stand on their shoulders and say, well, okay, from there, thanks for that view, but here's a better one standing on your shoulders. I see further. He also took upon himself the consequences of that rejection, which is death of an indescribably horrific kind. The death of the cross. So I ask this. How else can we interpret this? How else can we interpret this? When we read the statement that says. Christ was made to be sin for us. Was he not there bearing the consequences of human rejection of God? 2 Corinthians 5.21. Certainly, man, and I'm all for changing this up when you say man. I'm all for changing it up to men and women, to all of humanity, because that's obviously clarifying. It clarifies it. Certainly, humanity, which is all of sinful humanity, all of sinful humanity, includes Israel. It's interesting that he says The rescuer comes from Zion and takes away ungodliness out of Jacob because it was precisely Jacob's people who were complaining about the pagans and the wrath of God that comes upon all ungodliness in Romans 1.18. In fact, I think Campbell may have been on the money when he said that that was the 1.18-32 was a kind of excursus of the opposing missionary. Even if it wasn't, it is certainly the viewpoint of Jewish and Gentile moralists as they berate the idolatrous pagans. The wrath of God comes down from heaven upon all asabea, asabia, ungodliness. Interestingly, in Romans eleven twenty seven, God removes ungodliness, not from the pagans there, but from Jacob, which is another word for Israel. 
So everybody gets it here. Nobody gets off the hook here. Universal homardiology, a universal sinfulness, yields to a universal soteriology. Universal disobedience requires God's universal mercy. That's where we're headed here. So if this proves, and I think this thesis can be borne out, I can do it a lot further, and I think maybe I will do that tonight. We got time. If this includes all of humanity, that God took up for all humanity, was for all humanity, bore the rejection of humanity, and elected all of humanity in Jesus Christ to participate in his glory, then it has to include all of Israel. So all of Israel is saved within the context of the salvation of all of humanity, and all of humanity is saved within the context of the liberation of all creation when God sums up everything in his son. So I say, if this thesis is true, so what do we do? Remember how we learned St. Thomas Aquinas's method brought to us by Bernard Lonergan? You ask quits it first. What is it? And then you determine what you think it is. And then you make it certain by saying onset, another Latin word, onset, A-N-S-I-T. Is it really so? So onset, I would ask, is this thesis really so? Then we have to go to the scriptures. To answer this, we will first observe, and I'm doing this very, very streamlined. That means I'm reducing it down. And this could be a college thesis to answer this one thesis by him. It could be a term paper. But I'm trying to boil it down to a few things here. To answer this question, is that true? We first observe that Jesus Christ himself is called eclecton, the elect one. In the scripture, in a very notable place in Deutero Isaiah, which is a very is pretty much the last section of scripture that takes us into the New Testament. He says, behold, my servant, this is my servant. I strengthen him. Isaiah 42 one. This is my elect one. Ha eclectos. I delight in him. What does Matthew 3.17 say? This is my son in whom I am delighted, in whom I am well pleased. This is my servant. This is my elect one. I have put my spirit on him. You can compare that to Isaiah 61.1 and Jesus actually quoting it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Luke 4.18. His message was very inclusive of the woman at Zarephath, of the Gentiles, of women, of men. And because it was so inclusive, the response of the synagogue goers was to kill him, to want to kill him, throw him into a ditch and stone him to death. Interesting. He will bring saving justice to the nations. The word creason here refers to righteousness or saving justice to the nations. Another way of saying he will bring salvation. To the nations. Luke 23 35. Interestingly, Jesus crucified. He's on the cross, suffering unspeakably. People en masse are mocking him, but especially the religious leaders are mocking him, and they say this Luke 23 35. The people stood watching, and even the leaders kept scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself. If this is God's Christ, the elect one. What a stunning way to show, as Luke did, that indeed this despised and rejected crucified man is indeed God's Christ. The, why is he called the elect one? Because he was elected as all and he was elected by God to experience the rejection and the election for all of humanity 
And so we may say, if this thesis is true by Barth, that in Jesus Christ, God takes upon himself the rejection of the gospel by Israel, as he also takes on the rejection of the gospel by all of sinful humanity in Adam. The real shock isn't that people reject the gospel. The shock is that God accepts the consequences of humans rejecting the gospel. That was revealed in the cross of Christ. And so we may say, if this thesis is true, and it's panning out to be so, that in Jesus Christ, God takes upon himself the rejection of the gospel by Israel, as he also takes on the rejection of the gospel by all of sinful humanity in Adam. This finds its essence in Jesus Christ and him crucified. I determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't know the gospel outside of Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't know election outside of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Operation Epsilon. And so, what was Jesus bearing, enduring on the cross? He was bearing the responsibility of our rejection. Israel's rejection of God, all mankind's rejection of God. Israel and humanity in toto, the rejection, is also in a what we call a plenary genitive sense. Israel's rejection of God and God's rejection of Israel is both born by Jesus Christ in himself. If these verses are not convincing, then let's add another one. Let's go to 1 Peter 2.4, just for a minute. This, I'm going to let the Spirit fill in the blanks for you guys. I trust you now. You're going to think things through. I think you think things through. While I'm, did you ever have, while I'm talking, did you ever have something else ring in, not to contradict, but to kind of correlate with what I'm saying? Another verse you're thinking of, another message, another thing you read. Have you ever had that? You don't have to raise your hands, but have you ever had that happen? That's supposed to happen. That's a sign of a mature student. And it's not a contradictory thing. It's supposed to happen. How about 1 Peter 2.4? Coming to him, the way it reads in the Greek is pretty stunning. It says, coming to him, or having come to him, Jesus Christ, a living stone. Stone always goes back to Psalm 118. How marvelous it is in our eyes, meaning in Operation Epsilon, in the eschatological viewpoint, how marvelous it is in our uh, enlightened eyes that the stone that the builders rejected, the leaders of Israel rejected, became the very head of the corner of the temple of God, which will one day be universally manifested. Isn't that amazing? It's marvelous. And so we have it here, Peter's thinking of that. Coming to him, Jesus Christ, a living stone, the resurrected Christ, the stone that was rejected. Rejected by men, he said, but elect, eklektos. There's an S there instead of an N, doesn't matter. There's different forms of the spelling. But eklektos and precious to God, elect and precious to God, viewed by men, rejected, viewed by God, elect, and precious. Precious there meaning invaluable. A stone, a precious stone, a precious gemstone. All of the city of the New Jerusalem is made of gems, as we know, metaphorically speaking, in Revelation. So this goes to Matthew twenty-one forty-two, which goes to Psalm 118.22, and then to Isaiah 28.16, Behold, I lay in Zion a tested stone, 
a stone of offense, a stone of stumbling. In Zion, he became the stone of stumbling, the crucified Christ, the offense of the cross. But from Zion, the place of the cross, he would come to Israel and take ungodliness right out of him. So, Look it up yourself, Matthew. Follow it. Follow the logic. Matthew twenty-one forty-two, Psalm one eighteen twenty-two and twenty-three, Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. If you want to get really deep, go to Ze Zechariah chapter three. Read the stone. Go to a concordance and find the word stone and follow it as it identifies Jesus Christ. And Romans nine thirty to thirty-three in which Jesus is identified as the stone that the builders rejected and which has been made the chief cornerstone in his resurrection. So Peter goes on to call his readers living stones who are to be built up into a holy temple. He identifies you and me with the stone, capital S-T-O-N-E, or with the elect one. The living stones are living because they are elected in the living stone, Christ. They are elect ones in the elect one. I'm saved because of the election of Jesus Christ. First Peter 1, 1, he starts off the whole epistle this way. Peter knows more than we think. Peter's deeper than people think. And you can't judge Peter by one faux pas at Antioch. Because he was remarkable. First Peter 1 1, my translation Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the temporary residents of the dispersion. This actually may be HCSB with a little bit of tweaking, but in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, 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 Cappadocia, Asia, that's Asia Minor, and Bithynia, elect, plural, electois, plural according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, 1 Peter 1.17, he says, and if you call by the name Father, Paul is more intimate, calls him Abba. We could say the same thing, Romans 8.15, Galatians 4.6. And if you call by the name Father or Daddy, the one who judges impartially according to each person's actions, this is Yahweh, God, God the Father. If you call God the Father, Father, you should live out your temporary exile here, which is life on earth. It's called a temporary exile. You should live out your temporary exile here with reverence. Knowing, verse 18, that neither by gold nor silver were you ransomed from slavery to a useless way of life passed down to you from your ancestors. For the Jews, that useless way of life was attempting to be justified by the works of the law. For the Gentiles, it was superstitions and other things. It was handed down family to family. But verse 19, you were not redeemed, ransomed from slavery to a useless way of life passed down to you from your ancestors. I love this verse. I'm in love with it. Verse 19. But with precious blood, like that of a paschal lamb, without defect or blemish. And then it has a long hyphen. We would have it in the English and Christ. The word Christ is emphatic because that's the last word in that whole sentence. Listen to how it reads. It's so beautiful. Knowing that neither by gold nor silver were you ransomed from slavery to a useless way of life passed down to you from your ancestors. Verse 19, but with precious blood like that of a lamb without defect. Speaking all the way back to Leviticus twenty-two twenty-one. Hebrews 9.14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God without blemish, without defect and spot, purify your conscience from the need to do dead works in order to serve the living God.
But with precious blood like that of a, he speaks specifically of the Passover lamb, the Paschal lamb, without defect or blemish, Christ. Verse 20, who was foreknown indeed. Therefore, known takes on the synonym of elect one, eclectoi, eclectos, as it was already developed in 2.4. He is the elect one. Here, he is the foreknown one. He indeed was foreknown. This compares with Romans 8.29, the vast band of brothers and sisters in him, which is all of humanity all of humanity, diachronically. He was truly foreknown because in him was foreknown all of humanity. In him was elected to glory all of humanity. Before the creation of the universe, the foundation of the cosmos means the creation of the universe, but manifested, the word phanerao, is a synonym for apocalypto here, manifested at the last of times. Here we have both eschatology and history in one phrase, ep eschatu to chronu, or ton chronon, at the close of the ages, or the close of time, at the last of times, he was manifested because of you. Because of you. D. Humas, because of you. Christ, the Lamb of God, was manifested in the eschaton of the times. That means where eschatology crossed or intersected with history. At the cross, the Christ event. Peter goes on in 121 to say that it is through him that you are faithful. Through him, you are faithful. Through him, you are faithful. To God who raised him from the dead. Meaning your faithfulness is merely a participation with his faithfulness to God. If you're faithful to God, it's because you share in the faithfulness of Christ to God who raised him from the dead. That's the same as saying that you participate in the faithfulness of Christ to God who resurrected him. This is the meaning of God being the savior of all humanity. Another pastoral verse, 1 Timothy 4.10. This is the meaning of God being the savior of all of humanity, especially those among humanity who presently believe. That is, those who participate in Messiah's fidelity, which is also known as, in Romans 1, 5 and Romans 16, 26 as the obedience of faith. The main point of this gesture to 1 Peter that I'm making tonight, the main point of gesturing to Peter from Romans is that Christ was foreknown and thus elected and destined for all of humankind. As Barth rightly stated, Christ was foreknown by the God who was fully pleased with him even before creation and thus before the times and eras of history. But there was a time in history that he was manifested or apocalyptically revealed in the most significant moment of history. He was manifested in a universally salvific way. I say salvific because Peter uses the words redeemed, which is a saving word. And for your sake, dehumas. That's another way of saying for you. God is for you. God is for us. God is for us in such a way that he did not spare his own divine son but freely handed him over on behalf of us all. Christ, the Paschal Lamb, is at the heart of Peter's message. As I just showed you, a lamb without spot. 
Did we not teach in John's gospel that Christ, the Lamb of God, is the centerpiece of John's gospel? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sinfulness of the world. And then we see him on the cross crying out. Or at least stating, perhaps stating calmly. To tell us that. And not a bone of him was broken to fulfill what? That the lamb used in sacrifice shall have no bones broken. Did we also attempt at least to show that the Paschal Lamb is at the heart of John's apocalypse? I looked and behold, a lamb as it had been slaughtered and yet was standing. And throughout, as we've seen before, 28 mentions of the lamb in Revelation. Four times seven. The four mentions of the seven spirits of God. It's the message. Christ, the Lamb of God, is at the very heart of the heart of Romans. God who spared Isaac, Abraham's only son, born supernaturally. His only born supernaturally son. God spared him. And said, God will provide himself a lamb. God did not spare his only son. Supernaturally born. But freely gave him over on behalf of us all. In behalf of us all. At the heart of Romans. Quite literally at the very heart of the heart of Romans. Is the Paschal Lamb of God. Our Paschal Lamb, says Paul, and still another place, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Our Paschal Lamb has been killed, slaughtered. And he has been raised and presently rules until all of his already defeated enemies are brought beneath his nail-imprinted feet. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, 15, 25 to 28. So I think we may say safely that Christ, God's Lamb, not only was manifested at the last of the times or at the height of the times of human history, but that he is also manifested to be the last of times. In other words, he is manifested as the last of times, the eschaton of the chronon. Manifested as the end of the times in which death and sin reign is what it means. He appeared at the end of the time when death would reign and sin would reign and principalities would reign a time in which powers and principalities and terror and famine and dangers threaten the elect ones. Jesus Christ and him crucified entered into the history that we call times and seasons to take away sin to defeat death and to depose the prince of this world and then to draw all to himself, to sum up all things redemptively in himself. This gospel is terribly resisted today. And instead of panicking about it, I thank God that Jesus Christ takes upon himself the rejection of this gospel and its consequences. That way we can love people if they come against us for any reason for our preaching of this gospel. So then, this was done in the Christ event. This summing up was done in the Christ event. The making new of all things was done in the Christ event. It was done when he said it's done. Eschatologically speaking, it's marvelous in our eyes if our eyes see where it was done. But it is yet to be fully manifested in the coming of Christ, which will be visible to all humanity. Every eye will see him, even 
the eyes of those who pierced him, which is every eye. Every person pierced him because he took the consequences of our rejection of him. Every eye. So what he did at the cross will be fully manifested to all of humanity in all of its times because of resurrection. In his free grace, God indeed determined himself for sinful humanity. When Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done, Father, he was agreeing with God's saving will to save all of humankind. So he was speaking on behalf of all humanity when he said, not my will, because human will will reject you, but your will, which is a saving will to save all, let that will be done. And the only way it could be done was through the cross and the cup that he would drink. In his free grace, therefore, God indeed determined himself for sinful humanity and sinful humanity for himself. In Jesus Christ and him crucified, God himself took the consequences of humanity's rejection of himself upon himself. Even as in Jesus Christ's faithful obedience to the death of the cross, God decided for all of humanity in all of its times. Like Caesar seated in the box at the arena, Caesar could put the thumbs down and the gladiators would die. Or he could put the thumbs up and they would live. God looked into the arena of time and he said, all of humanity in this arena of contention, thumbs up. Life in my son. So in Jesus Christ and him crucified, God took himself and took upon himself the consequences of humanity's rejection of himself. Even as in Jesus Christ's faithful obedience to the death of the cross, God decided thumbs up for all of humanity in all of its times. Now, I haven't got much further to go tonight, but I will say this. We're prepared now to say that since God in Jesus Christ took upon himself the rejection of all of humanity with all of its consequences, then by an a fortiori argument, Certainly, all of Israel is included in this gracious action. Not only that, but if God also predestined all of humanity to participate in his glory, then this also includes significantly all of Israel. The current response to the gospel, euangelion, the current response to the gospel, euangelion, by the temporarily hardened part of Israel has nothing to do with their elective standing in Christ, their Messiah. Who is the elect one? The root, the first fruits. God is faithful through and through, even in and especially in the face of human faithlessness. That's good news. So again, let's look at it again in 1128. With respect to the gospel, they, Israel, the hardened part, the branches broken off, are enemies for your salvific sake, so that you'll be saved. But with respect to the election, the election, and then Paul goes on to explain in the next verse, the gifts and calling of God, including the election of Israel, are without revoking God doesn't revoke his election of Israel just because they reject the gospel God doesn't revoke the eclecton because they reject the euangelion so with respect to the gospel they are enemies for your sake but with respect to the election they are loved as represented by their forefathers and by what God did in the seed through their forefathers, we could say. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. We always wanted to apply that to me. 
I have the gift of salvation. God won't revoke it. I have eternal security. I'm all right. I'm all set. I don't know about you. Well, now I know about you. You're all set too. So is Israel. So is everybody. So last thing I'll ask, and again, we haven't met much lately. If you have to go, you have to go. I know there's some kind of contest on TV probably. Somebody climbing up a wall or falling from a wall or Ellen pulling the thing on somebody so they fall into some pudding or something. I know you got to see that. But the question is, what are the gifts and what is the calling that he's speaking of here? A, answer. Question, what are the gifts and what is the calling? Answer, the gifts include seven. One, the oracles of God that were entrusted to the Jews. Romans 3.2. The next thing after 3.2, it says, but what if some didn't believe? And God, and Paul says, let God be true. Let God remain faithful, in other words, even though every person becomes a liar and every person has become a liar, for all have sinned. But God remains true. So the first thing is the oracles of God that were entrusted. But then you got to jump all the way to Romans 9 to get the rest of them. The adoption is theirs, or the place and privilege of the sons of God. They're called the sons of God, eschatologically speaking, even though historically they dropped the ball. The adoption. We're talking now Romans 9, 4, and 5. The resident Shekinah glory may have left for a time, but it's coming back. They have been predestined for that glory. The resident glory. Four, the covenants belongs to Israel. Five, the giving of the law belongs to Israel. Not for them to have to keep it, but as part of their glorious heritage. The sacred worship and the promises. That's really one prompt, one gift. And then seventh, or then next, let's see, let's look at it again. The oracles of God, number one. Two, the adoption or the placement of sons. Three, the res- resident Shekinah or the glory. Four, the covenants. Five, the giving of the law. Six, the sacred worship and the promises. Seven, let's make that eight then. The patriarchs as far as and seventh as far as or rather eighth as far as physical descent Christ himself is the gift of God to Israel that he does not revoke because Christ was elected for all of them Christ was elected for all of them Christ elected to accept their rejection as his own responsibility. And so the gift of Christ to Israel is not revoked. He's talking about Israel here. He's not talking about your personal, individual, eternal security, even though that's, of course, set in stone, in the stone. What is the calling then? The calling is the bringing into existence of Israel as God's elect people. All that is without revoking by God And the whole point is he doesn't revoke it in the face of their rejection, in the face of their enemies of the gospel. He does not. They're still loved in the sense of elected and they will never change. God doesn't take away the honorable heritage of all of Israel, all the Jews, we could say according to descent from Abraham through Isaac, nor does he take away their destiny. In glory, nor does he take away their destiny that's wrapped up in Christ who belongs to them as he belongs to all the nations. This is in spite of the unbelief and continuous infidelity of some Romans 3, 3 and 4, which is really many because God is true. Even if every human being is unfaithful, in fact, God remained true when all sinned in his sight. Romans 3, 10 to 18. God remained true, true to you, true to me, faithful to us, by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin and to justify all of humanity, to condemn sin 
and to justify all of humanity in all of its times. A salvific action that obviously includes all of Israel. God remains true when his people are untrue. He remains faithful when his people become faithless. 2 Timothy 2.13. Consider in closing what Jürgen Moltmann wrote in 2004. He wrote this. A divine promise is the promise of a future which God is going to bring about. When God promises something, he is bound to keep his promise for, it, for his own sake and for the sake of his glory. Then he said this, and this knocked me for a loop. His whole being is faithfulness. Now, that God's whole being is faithfulness is the testimony of Scripture, 2 Timothy 2.13. He remains faithful because he can't deny himself, meaning if means faithfulness is himself. Moltman, you're right. I test, it every, I test every word that comes through these people, male and female theologians. His whole being is faithfulness. He remains faithful even in the face of human infidelity. He cannot deny himself because himself is his faithfulness. And you say, but what about God is love? Exactly. Exactly. God is love is also the testimony of the Bible. Not just 1 John 4, 8 and 1 John 4, 16. But Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, God is love. Because the scripture cannot be broken, as Jesus said, or contradict itself, then it would be right to say then, to put these two together, that God is faithful love. His whole being is faithful love. In Romans, the epistle, especially in chapters 9 through 11, he remains faithful to save even in the face of human infidelity. I'm going to close, but look where we're going now. 2 Timothy 2.13, in that sense, is interpretive of Romans 9 through 11. Write 2 Timothy 2.13 over Romans 9 through 11, and you'll have the interpretation of Romans 9 through 11 in a nutshell, en nuce, to use another Latin phrase, ennuce, E-N-N-U-C-E, in a nutshell, ennuce. We have now opened a gate, and you can drive your camper right through it. It's Romans 11.30. Just as you Gentiles, Paul's slamming down the final word of his argument. Just as you Gentiles that assume that God has forsaken Israel, but the gifts and calling of Israel are not revocable. Just as you Gentiles as a people and as individuals were formerly unfaithful to God, disobedient, idolatrous, ungodly, but now have received mercy. He doesn't even say, now you've changed. <laughs> he says, now you've received mercy. Through the disobedience and unfaithfulness of Israel. So also, they too have become faithless. Which is another word for disobedience. So that they also may receive mercy. Why did you receive mercy? Because you were disobedient. Not because you believed, because you didn't believe. God has mercy on us poor bastards who don't believe. Not on people who do. Well, God has mercy on me because I believe. No, God had mercy on me because I was unbelieving. That's from Hebrews 12, 6 through 8, by the way. It's not a bad word. Mercy, God, before he has mercy on his sons, he has mercy on us bastards. So, I'm just keeping attention to the last couple minutes now. This is the last thing. Mercy is what God in his faithful love 
gives precisely to those who are faithless. All of this is demonstrated by history. But the next verse sums up what God did Christologically and eschatologically. Operation Epsilon. It's marvelous in your eyes. If your eyes see this. 1132. For God has consigned all of humanity in all of its times. All of humanity in all of its times to the disobedience of faithlessness. They all belong to that one category. The disobedience of faithfulness. The faithlessness. Lessness, rather faithlessness of disobedience. So what are you going to do to them all? Now that you got them all in that camp, I'm going to let them all go. I'm going to have mercy on them all. I throw them all in one prison just to let them all out. Liberate them. Bart was right. Thank you, father. In Jesus name. May this message find a way into our hearts and be articulated by the Holy Spirit in a way that cannot be articulated by a pastor or a teacher or by any human being. May this be riveted into our consciousness. May your Holy Spirit even take now what we've already studied and teach it to us in a way that will be unforgettable and that will invoke worship because that's where we're going next, 33 to 36. It's all doxology.